0: Optimal minimal. At this altitude I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start to shake. Can I answer your personal question?
1: Now it is time. What if I did the
0: eye? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Hello, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I am recording this from my secret hideout in the mountains of Utah, an undisclosed location doing undisclosed things for perhaps future book experimentation. In any case, this is the Tim Ferriss show where I deconstruct or attempt to deconstruct world-class performers of all types, hedge fund managers, chess prodigies, military strategists, you name it. And we do have a very exciting episode. We have Alain de Botton as a guest, and I'm going to describe him and explain why you should stick around. But first, some house cleaning, real fast, or housekeeping, I suppose. And that is. A giveaway. Uh, It's been a long time since I gave away a trip, and I've been thinking about escaping to Australia, for instance, and other places. So I thought maybe you'd like to do the same. And by that I mean I'm giving away a vacation anywhere in the world. I've partnered with Stack Social and Boots and All to offer you a free ride around the globe. Plus there are tons of other awesome prizes. So check it out. Fourhourworkweek.com forward slash trip. Spell it all out. Fourhourworkweek.com forward slash trip. Doesn't cost anything. And if you sign up, you'll get a unique link. Every time you share that on social, you receive another five entries to improve your odds. So hope to see you on the road. Check it out, 4 forward slash trip. It's pretty sweet. The guest that we have today is Alain de Botton, A L A I N D E. B-O-T-T-O-N. He has many things, but I think of him as a philosopher of the most practical breed. And as I've mentioned before and written about quite extensively, I view pragmatic philosophy as a set of rules for making better decisions in life, ideally in high-stress environments. So as you know, probably I'm a huge fan of stoic philosophy. Alain, in 1997, he turned away from writing novels and instead wrote an extended essay, with the funny title, How Proust Can Change Your Life, which became an unlikely blockbuster in self-help genre. No one expected it to happen, and bang, suddenly he was on the map. His subsequent books take on all sorts of fundamental worries of modern life. Am I happy? Uh, What do I do with status anxiety, etc.? And this is informed by his deep reading and philosophy, but also by his novelist's eye for small, perfect moments. It's a very cool combination. His books have been described as, quote, philosophy of everyday life. Life and are on a diverse range of subjects, including love, travel, architecture, religion, and work. His bestsellers include Essays in Love, How Proust Can Change Your Life, Status Anxiety, and The Architecture of Happiness. And I'm going to include links to all of these in the show notes at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. So everything we mention in the episode, all of the goodies will be there. fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. In 2008, De Botton also helped start the school of life, which is awesome. He's he, this began in London and it's a social enterprise determined to make learning and therapy relevant in today's uptight culture. His goal through any and all of his mediums is to help clients learn how to live wisely and well. And since I am also a student in that realm, I wanted to get him on the phone. Many of you asked for this conversation, this interview. I loved it. And I hope you do as well. Say hi to him on Twitter. Let him know what you thought of the interview. If you have any follow-up questions, it's at Alain de Botton, A-L-A-I-N-D-E-B-O-T-T-O-N on the Twitters. Please enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Good sir. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I appreciate you making the time to have a conversation from the other side of the pond. And I will admit something very embarrassing. The good sir, the kind sir, the uh the so on and so forth is because I've I've searched far and wide <laughs> to discover how to say your name correctly and didn't want to say it incorrectly because I've had guests on like Maria Popova, Pavel Tatsulin, who have had their names massacred every time that I've actually heard it said. So how do you pronounce your name properly?
1: Tim, you're so lucky to be called Tim. Um, <laughs> I was born on this earth with the name Alain de Botton. Alain de Botton. So, I mean, anything you can manage. Just don't call me Elaine. You can call me Alan. Um, but I don't, I don't care. It's just one of those things that happened.
0: Do you, um, when you're speaking with native English speakers, how do you introduce yourself?
1: I just say I'm Alain de Botton, and you know, see what they say, see um, how
0: they respond. <laughs> um, <sorry.
1: laughs> yeah, but you know, every 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 school kid in England has has done. You know, four or five years of reluctant French, and and there's always a there's always a a, a French teaching book with with a character called Alain, so they can just about manage that. Um, but but I mean, it's really all my fault, and I'm deeply apologetic. And um, what can I say? It's one of those things. That's what globalization brings us.
0: It's like Pavel uh, when he orders coffee at Starbucks, he just says Pablo because that's what they're going to come up with anyway. Uh, well, well, that that also leads me to ask And of course, we'll dig into a lot in this conversation, and I'm very excited to finally be chatting. This has been a long time in the making. When people ask you, what do you do, how do you answer that?
1: Well, look, the easiest thing to say is that I'm a writer, but but that doesn't really cover it because... Um, writers come in all shapes and sizes. If the conversation is allowed to go on a little longer, what I tend to tell them is I'm interested in emotional intelligence, in emotional health. Um, It's it's a kind of topic that broadly pertains to all the things that make life difficult, that are coming from the kind of emotional centers of our brain and functioning. Um, you know sometimes people joke about first world problems right they, they kind of they, they laugh at how we are in the United States or the UK and they say you know you guys just have uh, got first world problems and it's supposed to be a joke it's it's like people who are you know quibbling because the uh, you know the Chardonnay is not chilled enough or whatever. Um, I actually think that there is such a thing as first world problems, not seen as a joke but seen genuinely, which is really the problems of advanced civilization uh, that we're living in now. When the majority of people have got enough food, they've got a a secure shelter, but life is still very tough in all sorts of ways. So it's not the old kind of toughness when it was really about survival. It's toughness of a different sort. It's about uh, trying to… Um, make sure that your brief time on earth is well spent that your talents have been properly explored that you're in a satisfying relationship that you understand yourself that you have a purpose etc. now in many parts of the world these sounds these things sound like luxuries and indeed they are but they are daily realities in in countries you know like the united states there are about 20 countries in the world where these kinds of concerns are active um, and these are the concerns that interest me you know um, they 're concerns as I say, around uh, relationships, workplace satisfaction, ambition, community meaning i mean these words we can go into them they sound a little nebulous when you first mention them, but it 's the kind of higher order uh, questions that people start to ask themselves once the basic supply of food and shelter have
0: been assured right and it seems like uh, when I look at for instance the cases of suicide that I've encountered in my own life, uh, friends who've committed suicide in, in every case, they're far enough up Maslow's hierarchy of needs that they've satisfied shelter, hunger or food, etc. And they, I think one of the challenges perhaps is that when people get to a certain point and they're grappling with self-actualization and so on, there, there are few, uh, sort of flies in the ointment. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, uh, and feel free, obviously, to, to to strike me down with a sharp blow. But the <laughs> number one is that many of the terms they're grappling with, like you pointed out, are in some ways nebulous. They don't have the topics or challenges, don't necessarily have clean, clear uh, evolutionary answers uh, like I am hungry, therefore I should find food and in some cases we realize that what we thought would would address the angst or anxiety that we have such as uh status or money in fact uh, appears not to provide any type of lasting relief from those types of dilemmas um how did you become interested in these questions I, and of course i mean your your books for instance have been described as a philosophy of everyday life and uh, you've written about all sorts of things across the board but how did you how did you fall into or become attracted to these types of questions and the philosophy of everyday life if you think that 's a fair description um, in the first place sure
1: sure well I, I tend to um, start always with myself so i 'm a very personal writer i'm not I'm the opposite of an academic i 'm um, looking for Uh, answers to the problems that I experience. I start with myself as the first case study. And I think if I'm getting myself right, if I'm understanding myself right, by definition, I'll be getting lots of other people right as well. So, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a laboratory of one. Of course, I step out of that. I read a lot. I meet a lot of people. I talk, et cetera. But as it were, I tend to start the emotional energy comes from, you know, the first patient me. Um, and, uh, you, you know, I, I'm the one with all the problems. And um, they tend to also just happen to be problems that other people have as well. So quite early on in my life, I realized that there were two things which were deeply problematic for me. The first one was the area of love and relationships. And the second was the area of, Work that these were things that were giving me real trouble. Um, I think you know I've come to see with age that these are th- that there wasn't a coincidence. That these are the two areas of massive insecurity, doubt, and most importantly, the lack of guidance. You know, we 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 live in a society where we very much believe in freedom and individual um, self-realisation, which is fantastic from one point of view and leaves us desperately searching for guidance, clues, etc. And we're left very much alone. You know, I had a so-called elite education. I went to uh, Cambridge University in the UK. I, I got a good degree, etc. So I was a kind of well-educated citizen of the modern world. And yet, boy, oh, boy, I was so lost. Um, I just didn't know. You know, I hadn't... Had enough of the right sort of conversations. I hadn't met the right sort of people. Broadly speaking, I wasn't living in a therapeutic environment. I, I don't mean Oprah. I don't mean a psychoanalyst. I mean uh, uh, um, it, literally in the ancient Greek sense, therapy, which is the kind of nourishment and nurture of the soul, the inner bit, the precious bit of you. Um, there just wasn't any support. Uh, I was. I felt very cut off from that. And gradually, I felt my way through books, through conversations. Um, to a kind of way of living where i could just begin to understand some of the things that i was suffering from but if i were to diagnose my younger self i was a classic example of you know somebody living in uh you know a prosperous world city in the middle of a kind of heyday of capitalism um uh, suffering from all the angst that comes with that uh, i'd been taught that happiness Personal happiness came from finding one very, very special person, with whom there would be an ecstatic sense of communion. Um, and uh, she, it happened to be, and I would meet. It would be wonderful. My all sense of loneliness, loss, and drift would be healed. Uh, there would be. It would be like a, a, a sort of secularized version of a meeting with a deity. And I was on the lookout in bars, clubs. Dinner parties for this person, this this angelic deity who'd, who'd graciously come down to earth, and that that was going to solve my, my love problem that I also was facing a work problem. And the, the kind of ideology I'd grown up with was you're going to work very, very hard. Uh, and then you will find a precious bit of you and you will put that on a commercial basis, whatever it is, that inner precious core, you will turn into money in, in good time. Uh, you know, you will be both creative and also financially productive, etc. Now I'm not saying that either of these things is impossible, but they're very hard and we're very alone with them, very alone indeed. Um, and this struck me and uh, my career in many ways was designed to try and find some answers that would work for me and would work for others and by answers I don't only mean solutions I also mean interpretations you know when you're when you're suffering from something you don't necessarily always want or expect there to be a fix but at least just understanding what it is that's the problem uh, and and express kind of eloquently that's at least half the battle and I didn't have any of that and that's what my career has been spent trying to do
0: what did you study in undergrad? Was it your undergraduate studies at Cambridge?
1: I studied uh, what they called over there history of ideas, which was a wonderful course that really looked at the evolution of big concepts through time um, and how attitudes to different things had changed. So we would study a word like freedom and look at all the different ways in which that word has changed and you know how differently it was interpreted, say, in the fifth century – AD to the way it was interpreted in the 18th century, the way it was interpreted in America versus in China, et cetera. So that was really fun and, and,
0: and really good. And from, from that point, grappling with all these issues, as many people do, um, what put you on the, the, uh, the map, so to speak, f- as a, as a discusser, uh, explorer of these ideas? Um uh, you have, Of course, uh, a a very well-known extended essay called How Proust Can Change Your Life. That's another one I had to look up before this interview. I'm going to admit I had to look up (laughs) P-R-O-U-S-T to double-check and make sure that I would be pronouncing it somewhat close to correct. Perfect. How Proust Can Change Your Life. Is that the essay that kind of put you into the mainstream or slipstream? Or or were there other ways that you were able to test your ideas on a on a large public scale before that.
1: So uh, when I graduated, um, I was very aware that time was short and that there are immense pressures on young people to prove themselves pretty early on. And I felt that um, very much. I'd come from a family of high achievers and I was born with a sort of sense of like, you know, you've got to prove yourself. And um, it it was a kind of madness. I I now recognize it. it was, it was not, easy or the best thing. I don't think that's a, a great ideology to have, but but there we have it. So no sooner did I uh, graduate that I, I really started asking myself the biggest questions like, where do I want my life to go? I applied for various jobs, but I graduated in the midst of a recession. and It was very hard to find. What, when was this? This was 91. Uh... This was the summer of 1991. And um a lot of my friends were just, you know, finding things to do, taking jobs in bars, etc. And I asked myself, what do I really want to do? And I thought, what I really want to do is write books. Um, and I dared to admit that to myself in a kind of late night session of, of self-honesty. And I thought, well, I, why don't I just start now? And I'd been thinking a lot about writing and self-expression and all the rest of it. And so I kind of gradually felt my way to writing my first book, which was published when I was just 22 Um, And it was a book called Essays in Love. In the US, it was titled On Love. And um, I put my heart and soul into it. It's a very intimate dissection of a love story. And um, the book did very well. I mean, very well, certainly for a 22, 23-year-old. And it gave me the confidence and the courage to carry on. And uh, relatively soon after, I then wrote what turned out to be my breakthrough book, which was called How Proust Can Change Your Life. And thanks to American readers and uh, reviewers, that book did extremely well. And it was an unlikely moment um, because here was a book written about a early 20th century great French writer that was at the same time a self-help book. Um, and I deliberately chose to kind of mash up these two genres, a kind of scholarly essay and a self-help book. It wasn't just a, a kind of um, a sly commercial trick. There was serious intent, which is that I always felt that high culture, by which I mean, you know, literature, philosophy, uh, you know, plays, etc., these things do not just belong in the ivory tower. They have a richness to them, which can be absorbed and should be transmitted to the widest possible public. This is heresy among the universities that believe, uh, partly for economic reasons, that only if you enrol in their sacred uh, fraternity do you really have the right tools. To be able to interpret and enjoy the masterpieces of civilization. I passionately disagreed with that. I am by nature a popularizer and a democrat of the mind. And I did not appreciate that kind of cloistered vision of knowledge. So I took a lot of what I'd been thinking and reading and really tried to express it so clearly. And I would write sentences 20 times to make sure that they could be understood by everyone. Um, I would try material out on people who'd been educated and people who hadn't been educated at all. And I wanted to make sure that it would work at all levels. And so that was an extra layer of work. And I'm really proud and happy to say it did work. And the book proved itself around the world. And so I was in the very odd and fortunate position that come the age of 27, I'd had this, you know, book that had worked. Um, and, and I was kind of, uh, you know, I was aloft, um, at least, you know, for a time. So that's, yeah, that's how I ended up doing what I do.
0: And if, and for people who have not read, uh, let's just take On Love and How Proust Can Change Your Life was On Love. Autobiographical? Was it a novel? Was it a mix of the two? Neither. It
1: it it was a mix of the two because Tim, you know, what I love about novels is the local colour, the intimacy of language, the kind of the sense that you're suddenly in a real place and you know what the weather's like and etc. What drives me crazy about novels is that sometimes you feel that the novelist is cleverer than they're allowing their characters to be. You feel that there's all sorts of stuff that is discussed in non-fiction ways that somehow just doesn't find its way into the novel where it's all supposed to be about showing, not telling. And I didn't like those rules, so my novel was explicitly an attempt to a love story as well as show it to have a mixture of analysis and also more sensory descriptive bits because i wanted to touch the reader and make them think i didn't want to tell just another ordinary love story i wanted to analyze love in the course of a love story so that the kind of the, the knowledge bits would be well wrapped up in some of the excitement of a love story so it was it was kind of trying out a genre. And in all my works, I've always been a little impatient by the, the kind of models out there for how to write, like a classic novel must be, you know, X pages long must feature. Da, da, da. I, I've always been provoked to slightly pull at those rules. And um, so just as I wrote a self-help book, but, you know, it was half about this great 20th century writer and that's not normal so I was writing a novel but that wasn't quite the normal way of writing the novel so I was impatient with some of the the rules that writers get given
0: what um, which which writers or books most influenced your approach or thinking about uh, those two books on love, or we could focus on how Proust can change your life?
1: Um, Look, the books that I always most enjoyed were the books, first of all, where you feel the presence of an author in the text who feels like a nice person. I know that could sound kind of trivial, but um, it it just sounds like someone that you could kind of get to know and have have a chat with. I mean, if we think of someone like Thoreau, um, Thoreau sounds like a really great guy. Uh, he's friendly, he's sometimes sarcastic, but he's always witty, he's humane, he's generous, he's sometimes impatient, etc. But you kind of get a sense of a person. Um you get that someone's reading great writers letters you know if you read i don't know the journals of uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne for example um you get you get a flavor of of a person so uh, um someone like the french philosopher Montaigne was a great influence he was a man Definitely. who writing in the sixteenth century again, just spoke in this wonderfully direct, intimate way, so yes, he was telling you about Plato and he was telling you about history, et etc. but you always felt i 'm actually with someone, and i've always really appreciated the personal voice and um and that really influenced how I wanted to 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 write and be with my readers and
0: i I will admit when it comes to um most philosophy I'm kind of a one trick pony. Uh, I've, I've really read a lot of stoic philosophy, but outside of that, uh, I'm woefully inadequate. So I'm going to ask a question that you've no doubt been asked before that may be really irritating, but how can Proust change your life? What is the, uh, what is the structure of the book or what is the, um, what what are some of the theses or, or concepts discussed?
1: Sure. So um, Proust is really a philosopher more than a novelist, and his book is about the search for how you can stop wasting your life and start to appreciate life and live fully. So the title is very accurate. The title of his long book is In Search of Lost Time, and it's literally one man's search for how you can stop wasting your life. And it follows the... Uh, narrator hero, as he tries out three things that he thinks may turn out to be the meaning of life. The first first thing he tries is social status, a position in society. And uh, a lot of the book follows how he tries to get in with the top people in Paris. He wants to get in with – nowadays, they would be the celebrities, the business people, et cetera. But in those days, they were the aristocrats. And so he's trying to get in with them. He's trying to make a name for himself, et cetera. And it follows – it's very funny. It's warm. It's self-deprecating. But essentially – The search for the journey, he does manage to get into the inner sanctum, but he discovers that actually these people are often brutal, brutish, not that interesting, and not really interested in him properly. And he has a kind of moment of uh, existential despair around this goal of social status. He then moves on to another possible goal of life, which is romantic love. And a lot of the novel is spent tracing the love affair of the narrator for a beautiful late teenage girl called Albertine, who's charming, headstrong, gamine, the kind of boyish, uh, charmer. And, um, There are all sorts of disappointments and he realizes some of the real limitations of love, which is that we go to love because we think that someone will understand us fully, that we can be fulfilled totally in the arms of another person, etc. And gently and with humor and generosity, Proust unpicks some of these hopes. And again, gradually we realize that love, like social status, is perhaps not the meaning of life. So what is, well, Proust ends up, like many writers, defending his own art and craft. He defends art as the (laughs) meaning of
0: life. And what he means, what, what he means by art. It's kind of like, don't ask a barber if you need a haircut kind of situation. Exactly.
1: So it's a big big PR job on, on, on art, but he's more generous. You can certainly read him in ways that are more generous than merely art, as in, you know, you've got to immediately enroll on a fine art degree or something. He's not saying that. He is seeing the great works of art, not all art, but the great works of art as examples of life as it's lived to the full and he's interested in, in, particularly in certain artists so he talks a lot about the painter, the Dutch painter Vermeer who he thinks Oh, amazing. that, that's right and what he appreciates is that Vermeer painted daily life but he saw in daily life an extraordinary richness uh, and, uh, and 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 you know level of kind of psychological involvement etc that he was he was living life to the full so uh, he another painter he really liked was a french 18th century painter chardin who rather like vermeer painted modest interiors um, families around the kitchen table loaves of bread he painted about 20 loaves of bread um one of the first painters to kind of spend so long with bread. And really, it's a kind of, you know. It's, it's very French. Yeah, it's very fr- yeah. but, but it's also, you know, it's also a kind of secularized Christian message, which is really that ordinary, modest life has grace, has, you know, is in contact with the glory and dignity of the universe, kind of thing,
0: to put it to right, put the it, sacred in the exactly,
1: praying. exactly, and um, and and this is what makes Proust such an enchanting writer that he he is so interested in daily life and he wants to make daily life magical and that's what he resents and hates about snobbery because snobbery constantly makes you think that there's a group of people out there who are special, more special than the ordinary people, um, etc. and Proust. You know, the son of a kind of haute bourgeois, a wealthy family, etc., has this tremendously, deeply, profoundly democratic vision um, about the value of each individual and the capacity of an artistic gaze to tease out that value and therefore thereby make uh, life meaningful. So, you know, that's some of what um, I discovered and that provided the spine for my own uh, study of Proust uh, that, that I wrote.
0: So I have two uh, immediate responses. The first is, have you seen a documentary called Tim's Vermeer by any chance? I haven't. Oh, it is spectacular. It is about a computer scientist and a very famous entrepreneur in the desktop editing world who is an incredible inventor also. Uh, outside of those fields and decides he wants to determine how Vermeer painted the way he painted and goes through many different attempts, builds many different tools to try to replicate Vermeer paintings. It's, nice. it's a very fascinating, hilarious, uh, and, um, insightful look at uh, yet another obsessive <laughs> not saying you're obsessive but the world is full of interesting obsessives the second uh is uh, how did reading proust or writing this book as as you really dug into it uh, affect how you prioritized or lived your life how did you how did you incorporate that into your decisions priorities or life
1: um well look i think the liberation of that book for me was um, going up to a really big name, an authority that was spoken of by professors in reverential tones. And what I did with that is to fire some pretty naive questions at this kind of colossus of kind of Western culture. And I really asked the most essential but the most naive question, which is, how can you help me to live? Uh, and I think in a way, this is the best question to ask anyone one meets in many ways that's what you tend to ask in your podcasts um it's such a valuable question to ask very often we're too shy we we're we're reserved. we think that other people are going to be bored by that question or um everyone else knows it already, et cetera. The book liberated me to be a kind of person who would be able to go up to Works of high culture and culture generally, and kind of shake down the tree and and see what there was for all of us, uh, and um, uh, so that's that that was the kind of personal uh, discovery.
0: And and that so in sort of knocking at the door of this colossus and uh, daring to ask these questions about practicality that opened the door to then your career as a writer and exploration. Of that, in, 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 in that sense, is that what you mean? Or is there, are there ways that, that, uh, Proust impacted in the answers that you got back in your exploration, your day to day living?
1: Yes, I mean, I guess both. Um, uh, to, to address the kind of your second very good point, I, I think that there were many attitudes that I found in Proust that were incredibly seductive and charming in the in the best sense. So Proust's um, anti-romanticism, but but I mean by romanticism, um, Proust was reacting against many of the things that he saw in the 19th century that he disagreed with. The idea of the individual as a hero, the idea of love as the answer to everything, the idea of um, certain kinds of career success as being the only way to live, etc. He he, he took – kind of a a skeptical position vis-a-vis a a lot of these things um it wasn't that he rejected them wholeheartedly but he was a little skeptical beautifully skeptical and um and i found in him a kind of you could say a kind of maturity uh that i didn't necessarily possess at that age i was 26 25 26 and um And I learned from him, it was like sitting at the feet of a kind of wise person who's seen a few things and who says, you know, steady on, calm down, maybe, you know, look at it this way. Um, And uh, he, he, yeah, he he gracefully prized me from certain of my more immature positions uh, in relation to a a number of things.
0: Could you give uh, some examples?
1: Well, for example, you know, I'd mentioned love, but it's not that I'm now cynical about love, but, um, in a way, he, he rather dark, Bruce rather darkly says, you know, all of us cannot be understood by another human being perfectly, that there is an area of loneliness inside everybody and to blame someone for not understanding you fully. Um, is deeply unfair because, first of all, we don't understand ourselves, and even if we do understand ourselves, we have such a hard time communicating ourselves to other people, and therefore, to be furious and enraged and bitter that people don't get all of you know all of who we are is is a real is a really kind of cruel piece of immaturity, and um, that came as a real shock to me. You know, as, as, a, as a guy in his twenties who who really thought, no, no, love is this sort of magical communion where um, you know I see into their soul, they see into mine. There are no secrets, and there is no more loneliness. Um, and I've realised that there's a kind of beautiful intolerance so both beautiful but but really kind of negative it's 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 the breeding ground of a certain kind of impatience and that's kind of dangerous and that helped me a lot in my personal relationships i think it made me a slightly more 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 patient more humble kind of person to be around
0: Mm -hmm. and uh well, I have so many questions for you. The uh the uh this is mostly just a uh a, a therapy session for myself disguised as a podcast, but the um the the first uh question that uh that I'd love to ask um is building on that, I i I remember one point um there was a poll or a some type of research done I don't know how well it was put together and it said that uh, you know the the happiest country in the world is Denmark so based on these various surveys and uh, the data that's been gathered the Danish are the happiest people and I got a comment on a post I put up about this from a Danish person who said the secret to happiness is low expectations that's a pretty common <laughs> belief here in Denmark. And I, I, I thought it was very funny. And then I, I, then I, upon looking at it a second time, began to ask: Is there actually something there, right? And if there is, how do you, build, how do you combine, ideally, low expectations so you're not constantly disappointed, i.e., the the opposite of expecting your loved one to solve all of your loneliness and A B C D E F and G, while still. Striving uh, or 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 doing great things for yourself or other people, um, and you of course have written a lot since and done many things, and, and we'll dig into some of them. But how do you think about that?
1: Um, I think it's such a key question. Um, I, I think you're you're putting your finger on on a key thing, which is that. Very often people think that having mature, we could call them mature expectations or slightly low expectations in some areas um, is going to mean that you lose ambition, that you cannot have ambition and realism. You cannot be sober in some areas and still deeply excited to get out of bed, you know, in, in the morning. Um, I think that's not really true. I think there is you, you can have these, what you could call paradoxical positions on issues. For example, you know, I, I like to explore the idea of being a cheerful pessimist. And you go, hang on, how, how can you be a <laughs> cheerful pessimist, right? But but if you explore that, you know, um, if you're a little pessimistic about, about how a lot of things go, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be gloomy all the time. You may encounter moments of pure ecstasy as you realize um, that, there are some very fine things in a world which is otherwise very dark. Um, I don't think a backdrop of stark realism slash pessimism about all sorts of things that, you know, death and illness can visit us very suddenly without warning, that all our grandest plans can be undone by you know a blood clot in under a minute, um, that some of the finest ambitions fall prey to you know the meanest realities etc that that many of us perhaps all of us are going to go to our deathbeds with some very important parts of us still unexplored Um, I think it's because things are so dark because we are operating against a backdrop of, of darkness that you know a glass of beautiful lemon juice or a sincere conversation with a friend or a moment when, yes, things do go right and everything does go right. Why these things matter so much and perhaps much more intensely. It's it's like the joy of the convalescent who's come out of the hospital and they are seeing the sunlight strike, you know, the leaves of a daffodil. And that daffodil seems more beautiful than it's ever done to the robust, you know, football player who hasn't ever... Know, pause to uh, to appreciate these things so I, I as I say um, I think it's it, it should be utterly compatible with ambition appreciation uh, tenderness etc to to keep the really grim things not far from the top of consciousness kind of pretty much every day
0: the who are some philosophers or thinkers uh, that for those people who have uh, a lifelong aversion to the word philosophy and the the concept of philosophy uh, for for just from a utilitarian standpoint, a readability standpoint, maybe they're not the same but who who are who are some names that come to mind that you would recommend to folks as a gateway drug to um, to philosophy
1: sure that's such a good question I mean first of all I'd like to apologize on behalf of philosophy. <laughs> it's not my role, to, but I'll do it anyway, playfully. Um, the general public's disinterest and suspicion of philosophy is well-earned. It's deserved. The general public hasn't just forgotten about philosophy by mistake. Philosophers operating today have on the whole forgotten about the public. Um, insofar far. My point of view, as philosophy is interesting, um, I think it's, it's most interesting at its very, in its very opening moves. When philosophy begins in ancient Greece and Rome, uh, it sets out to be therapy for the soul. It sets out to be a practical tool that can help you to live and die well. Philosophers in those days are interested in finding out how families work, how money works, how status works, what we should do about public opinion, what we should do about death and illness and ambition and all of these things that trouble us every day. That was, you know, centrally what philosophers were interested in and and discussed. And the great philosophers of those days, people like Epicurus, like Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, Plato, you know, these people are all very much uh, worth uh, reading. Um, Philosophy continues to be interesting for many uh, centuries. Uh, I mentioned uh, the name of Montaigne early on. He's fantastic. Uh, in the 19th century, you get a, a great German philosopher, Schopenhauer. He's fantastic. You get Nietzsche, who can be read with uh, very rewarding uh, results. When we hit the 20th century, the number of interesting philosophers tails off because something happens to philosophy that is not often remarked upon, which is basically it splits in two. And from my money, the interesting stuff goes into psychology. Freud says that he is a philosopher. um, And, you know, the whole tradition that comes out of Freud, not just psychoanalysis, but but psychology more generally. Um, The the interesting stuff about how to live, how our minds work, how to actualize ourselves, how to relate to others, etc. these things, become the province of psychology. And throughout its history, philosophies had a habit of casting off bits of itself and kind of that that spurn that spur on sort of sub genres. It used to be that the study of the stars was what philosophies did. Uh, now, you know, that's astrophysics. So um philosophy does this split in the 20th century and nowadays philosophers tend to be really only ever employed by universities always a danger sign when, you're, when, when, your, subject matter, when your subject matter when no one will pay directly for your subject matter that's often a sign that something's gone wrong um, so right. no one, the
0: canary in the coal mine is getting a little wobbly that's
1: right, yeah, right. that's right so and, and, and that's deserved because philosophers don't tell us how to live and die anymore there are a few there's a great philosopher who was at Princeton called Martha Nussbaum she's terrific there a few others out there who are doing good work, but really not very many. Not very many that you would recommend. Let's say, I don't know, you had a friend who was interested in philosophy and was having a little hard time in life. There's very few names that you would recommend. Nevertheless, what philosophy really is, is a discipline that's distinct from, say, poetry or religion. But like poetry, it wants to talk about the things that are meaningful. Um, and like religion, it wants to give us guidance. But unlike religion, it's not using. The supernatural. It's no appeal to supernatural or, or, or um, you know, mysterious forces, forces you can't define. Um, it's, it's based on anything that you can kind of reason with. Um, and uh, and unlike poetry, it's not merely interested in kind of beautiful phenomena. It wants to take those somewhere. It wants to inform and, and reform us. So, the, the book I wrote after Uh, I I wrote How Proust Can Change Your Life, was a book called The Consolations of Philosophy. And in that book, I looked at six great philosophers. I looked at Socrates, Epicurus, Seneca, Montaigne, uh, Schopenhauer, and Nietzsche. And um, I I looked at these guys as for very practical guidance. It, It was an attempt to say to these great names, how can you show us, you know, what to do and, and, and how to live. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, so that was a kind of classic uh, style that I was developing and, um, and that I was getting good results from. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a book of mine that, that won many readers around the world. And it's still probably the book of mine that sells the best. Um, and it, it's, you know, it does um, what it says on the tin, which is to look for consolations among the work of some great philosophers.
0: Do you, uh, consider Bertrand Russell a philosopher?
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: he, yeah. I was, I was always very impressed. I was introduced to Bertrand Russell before I was introduced to Seneca and then vis-a-vis Seneca in delving into Stoicism. Uh, of course, he has a very interesting, uh, he has a very interesting style of prose and discourse so he throws in his yeah. uh, com- his competition right he throws in epicurus quite a bit as a way to pull in defectors which is very clever of him and not too surprising if you look at his political <laughs> hardwiring exactly uh, but Bert- but bertrand russell was the first one and i'm not sure if it was uh there's a there's a uh, i've read several of his books but you know why i am not a christian was one
1: the secrets of happiness uh, was it-
0: The Secrets of Happiness. Um, Also, yes, that may have been the first. And I, I was struck by how much it, uh, how strongly it contrasted to most of the philosophy I'd been exposed to. I went to Princeton undergraduate. I did take one philosophy class that was very, very, very good with a professor Rosen, and I'm, I'm blanking on. The uh, I think it was Metaphysics and Epistemology 101, which I probably couldn't t- define either of those terms at this point. But Professor Rosen was very good. And then the rest that I ran into really seemed like a lot of intellectual masturbation, um, where a vast majority of it seemed to focus on uh semantic tail chasing, like yeah. sort of the, the like, what does is really yeah. mean? And then they'd go on for 600 pages of rhetoric. And at the end, you're like, I don't think that added any value yeah. to my life.
1: I mean, Tim, I, I so sympathize uh, that was my experience as well. And it enrages me and saddens me. And I think that, um look, I'm, you know, the, the older I get, the more I realize that The great challenge of our own age is to take the good ideas and make them available to a wide public. And the universities often do weirdly the opposite. I mean, they, they inform a kind of narrow coterie of students, but there are, they stand outside the kind of democratic project. And that's critical because we live in a mass culture. We live, we live in a world where ideas have to have followings in the millions if they're ever to get traction. And when people, you know, wring their hands in despair and go, why don't we do this or why don't we do that or why is the world, etc. A lot of the reason is that the good ideas are not on network TV. They're not on the mass channels of communication so that a few people in the Ivy League universities have got full command of, you know, Wittgenstein's later philosophy. But out in the street, there isn't you know, that democratic pool of knowledge. And you know, I've always been attracted to the great Democrats of knowledge. So someone like Voltaire in 18th century France, he wanted to write for everybody. Um, uh, you know, someone like Emerson in the American tradition. Again, he was a man who, you know, toured the country and gave impassioned speeches about the highest and most meaningful things. But he was, you know, in, in the church hall talking uh, you know the language of ordinary people to get his message across, and that seem that seems to have been so hard for many twentieth-century philosophers. And Bertrand Russell is, you know, in a company of almost just one in 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 his decision that you know here was a guy who he he, he wrote a he had a column in 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 a in a, in a daily newspaper in England. He wrote articles for American Vogue. He appeared on television. He had a regular radio program. Many philosophers attacked him for this. They said that he was cheapening and and deadening his subject. But this was a man who knew his stuff. He wasn't going to be bullied and patronized. And he understood that the things he cared about would only live if he managed to get ordinary people properly engaged. So he was a wonderful, wonderful vulgarizer in the best sense. (laughs)
0: No, I I I agree. And I think that one of the challenges is that when you had, say, the the Stoics, right? Stoa, as I understand it, referring to porch, and they would sit in these informal classrooms and talk. I mean, there were other forms, of course, fora, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not up to speed with my etymology. But the when that translated into a more structured academic setting... Uh, and say the hard sciences had a progression in difficulty, right? Where you, if, you, if you're going to study at the graduate level, uh, in mathematics, you need to master the prereq, the prerequisites in undergraduate and then algebra and so on before that. And when you take philosophy and force fit it into that type of progression, you go from, uh, not striving to make something useful, but striving to make something Difficult, and I think when it becomes difficult, it's inversely correlated to its usefulness. Does that make sense? It's like, well, you can't be a PhD in philosophy until you've made it sufficiently arcane and made the rhetoric so convoluted that only five people at this university are willing to sit down and talk about it for three hours, and it's uh, it becomes this very unfortunate uh, sort of self um, cauterizing. Structure. totally uh, totally
1: and you know the unfortunate thing is that the humanities so all the great you know the great wisdom of the ages um, at a professional level they started to have to compete in the 20th century with the sciences for money and attention in universities and the way that they decided to take the battle is that they sort of try to turn themselves into pseudo sciences so that they suggested that you would study them like a scientist would, would study. So you would do things like research. You, you would find a poet and you would research the poet and you would do some kind of complicated, weird stuff in the, in the back engine room around that, you know, this person previously. The humanities was, wasn't handled – they weren't handled like this. They were handled by, by ordinary lay people who would spend half an hour in the evening dipping into, you know, a, a volume of philosophy or poetry. Um, suddenly, this stuff became the, the subject of kind of, you know, study that was akin to studying nuclear physics. Um, and that was all to make sure that the professors would get tenure and that departments would get funding and that governments would be suitably impressed. I can understand and sympathize with, you know, people's need to. You know, progress up the career ladder, but it's been a complete disaster for the rest of us because it's meant that wisdom that was supposed to circulate freely and democratically around the nation has become, you know, bunched up in some kind of centres um, uh, in the universities, and and is is not doing its job. And uh, meanwhile, you know, uh, well, we know we know what happens on TV and down the down the airwaves.
0: How? Um not how. Who do you think, uh, uh, the contemporary thinkers who are doing a good job of popularizing what you might consider philosophy, um, who are names that come to mind? Of course, you're, you are one of the first names that come to mind for most people, but who else would you put on that list?
1: Um, well, I have a colleague that I like very much called John Armstrong, who operates out of Australia and he's, he's, he writes some wonderful things. Um, There are also, as I mentioned, uh, someone called Martha Nussbaum, who's, who's doing a really uh, nice job. Um, you know, there have been, there have been others. Um, but it's, you know, it, it, it is hard. Um, popularization is, is hard. Um, one of my favorite popularizers is Jamie Oliver, the cook, chef. And what I love about the guy is that he's taught the UK how to cook. Um, and the way he's done that is to speak in the language of ordinary people about some pretty unordinary things like how to cook a, you know, duck a l'orange or something. And he's got working class English males to kind of put on an apron and do some weird stuff. And I think that's what a good teacher is. A good teacher is the person who takes your fear. And we tend to have these fears like, I'm a woman, so I can't, or I come from a working class background, so I can't, or, you know, I'm, uh, you know, an elite person. So I can't. We, we there are, a lot of people have these kind of blocks. I can't do this because of that in my past. And a good teacher says, "No. How do you mean? You, you can't do engineering and be a woman? Of course you can. Or you know, you, you can't be a working class uh, guy and, and read poetry. Of course you can, etc. And that's what a good teacher does: shakes you free from some of these kind of dichotomies. And uh, so for me, a uh, you know, a good teacher of philosophy is that someone who calms down the audience, like. You know, you thought that because you're a busy dentist, you can't read philosophy. It has no place in your life. Of course, you can. Uh, so that's that's what a good teacher does. And and you know, there, there are some out there, and 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 we need more.
0: I agree on Jamie Oliver. I have uh, one of his books, Cook with Jamie, about 15 feet in front of me on a shelf next to a couple of other people I would put in that same category of teacher. Uh, you have uh, Seven Fires, which is one many people probably haven't heard of, which is by a Patagonian chef trained in France about how to use fire to right. cook. But the the underlying... Uh, the underlying principles are the same, whether it's Richard Feynman, the physicist, one of my favorite books, you know, you, surely you must be joking, Mr. Feynman, uh, or Seven Fires or Jamie Oliver. I mean, they're, they are making the, the, the potentially complex simple to encourage the free flow of, of ideas and action. And it's the opposite of making the potentially simple complicated to constrain the flow because you have a scarcity mindset. You have a defensive mindset, which would be the case I think for, for many people at the highest levels of academia, which is unfortunate. They feel like if, if they were to popularize, it would, uh, it would sort of loosen the soil beneath their feet and remove some stability in some way, uh, or, or cheapen it. And I'm not sure when that happened. I mean, in the day of say, I'm. Sh- I, I, I there's there's a book I really need to read called I think it's Dying Every Day. It's a book about Seneca in the court of Nero. But was Seneca was a very very popular writer? Uh, do you have any idea if he was ridiculed and scoffed at by the highbrow philosophers of his day? Or did that, was, is that a recent development?
1: Um, well, he, he was ridiculed, not for, not for that issue, but he was ridiculed for, um, making a lot of money. Uh, which he did, yep. um, in, in politics and business and also, um, having a pretty luxurious lifestyle. And people said, how do you mean? Hang on. How do you mean you're supposed to be a stoic? You're supposed to be a philosopher. You're supposed to have one cloak and, and live in a thing and you, you you know, your house is pretty nice. And so there was some mockery and <laughs> he has some funny answers to that. I mean, he, he, he rebuts the charges head on. And, um, he says that the true philosopher, it's not the true philosopher, uh, must have no money. It's just that he must be ready. To lose it, that he must his hold on <laughs> it must be relaxed, right. and um, right. and in fact, you know, this could sound like, oh, oh yeah, you know, <laughs> pull the other leg, but but in fact, he did practice what he preached because um, twice in his life he did lose everything. He was exiled, he fell into political disgrace, etc., and um, he he behaved pretty well, um, and so stoicism is not necessarily stoicism. Attracted a lot of support among the very wealthy and the very successful because it taught them that they could survive without their wealth and their success and very often when people get wealthy and successful they become very scared of what would happen and they feel the need for ever more success and ever more wealth from a fear that if they would have to go backwards it would be catastrophic and what's very relaxing and nice about stoicism is that it partly says well you know uh, it, it's survivable. Of course it is. And one of the favorite Stoic exercises that they would perform was that once a month or so, um, a Stoic was advised to wear their dirtiest cloak and sleep on the kitchen floor. Seneca advised in the dog basket. Uh, I don't know how big that, <laughs> that might be. And you would drink the dog's water. And the idea was that for, for, for a few days, you live like a dog and you realize that that's possible and it's fine. And that removes, um, fear. And as they understood, coming back to your earlier issue about ambition, they realized that often what stops us from realizing our ambitions is fear. And therefore, if we make ourselves totally at home with failure, totally at home with utter disgrace, we will feel a curious lightness and sense of possibility because we won't be held back by the constant thought, what happens if? We will have fully explored the question, what happens if? We'll have made ourselves so at home and seen that there is nothing so bad about failure. And that will free us to advance more lightly and with greater courage towards some of our goals.
0: I couldn't agree more. And you, know, you were mentioning pessimism earlier. I gave a presentation, I think in 2008, 2009, it's only five or six minutes long, called uh, Practical Pessimism. And it made the point, like like you just did very eloquently, That if you practice the worst case scenario, and even if you were to view that as pessimism, but a very practical version of it, it actually frees you to be more ambitious. It doesn't teach you to drop your expectations. It just teaches you not to be attached to the expectation of a best case scenario. So it frees you up to swing for the fences because you're not afraid of striking out. At least I found that to be true for myself. And there's a a great essay also out there on the, uh, the, the discussion and the, uh, the, uh, stone throwing, uh, related to Seneca and his wealth. I mean, he was very well known for being wealthy and, uh, had his ivory legged tables and so on. There's an essay called the, the case of the opulent stoic, which is a very interesting read on, um, how that controversy evolved and where it may be a fair accusation and where it may be an unfair accusation. Um, but, uh, what a wonderful essay. some, yeah. oh yeah, it's a great, great name too. Yeah. Just like the in search of lost time. Um, the, uh, where did all this come from? I'm so, I mean, in so much as <clears throat> where did you grow up? What did your parents do? Could you give us some color as to your, your sure. upbringing, the pre, the, the pre-Cambridge
1: years? Um, so I came from a family, uh, of um, very displaced uh, and, and very neurotic and anxious immigrants. My father was born in Egypt. He was part of the Jewish community in Alexandria that got kicked out in the fifties, from one day to the next. He then drifted around the Middle East. He eventually wound up as a as an immigrant, as a refugee, more or less, in Switzerland. Um, was utterly penniless and desperate. Met my mother, who was a part of the swiss jewish community and she for all her own reasons her her family had her father had recently died the family had lost everything for having come from quite a privileged background they then lost everything and she was living um in very humble circumstances anyway they found each other they clung to each other and they were united in their desire to make it in life and to to be you know ambitious and achieve great things um they did manage to achieve great things together they built up a business um uh, my father you know made it big in the world of finance he always retained a kind of immigrant panic mentality um he got he had a swiss having not had a passport for long periods of his life he eventually got a famed swiss passport and he would treasure that item like nothing else and every time he crossed a border every time he went in and out of a country there would be panic in his eyes as he just thought, is this going to be the moment when they grab me and put me somewhere else, et cetera. So that was kind of part of his DNA. So it was a, fa- I was growing up in a family that was at one level uh, comfortable and, you know, had, had all the things in life at another level, there was a deep psychological kind of disturbance and fear. I would say that the dominant mood of my parents was anxiety. And, you know, if I returned home in the evening, they would sort of think, Oh, you're still alive. And I would go, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm still alive. And they were amazed. Um, and they believe above all in hard work, but to a slightly crazy degree. And I, I, as a child, I observed them and I observed both their successes and their strengths and also some of their vulnerabilities. I realized that these were people who didn't have a very good grasp of their own psychology and um, – but they did love the arts. Both of them loved the arts very much um, and that I inherited from them. Anyway, I inherited, you know, various things when always, every every childhood is such a sort of mixed bag of, of things. But um, I came out of that childhood thinking success is important, but at the same time, aware enough of the limitations of success to not swallow uncritically some of the messages about what it means to kind of make it in this world. And so you know, a lot of my work has been kind of exploring and probing what we mean by success and the challenges it brings, et cetera. So, yeah, I don't know if that explains some of it.
0: No, no it adds a lot of very helpful context. I mean, you've written, of course, Status Anxiety, The Architecture of Happiness, The News, A User's Manual. You're prolific, uh certainly compared to me. Uh, and have you... Have you, uh, developed any practices or reminders that help you to mitigate or minimize status anxiety? The keeping up with the Joneses or the fear of missing out, all of these issues that seem to really plague at least a lot of my friends. And I know I, I grapple with these myself. Sure. I mean,
1: um, I think, you know, a, a very vital kind of realization was it's not just me. It's, it's part of, being alive today, that we, we, you know, we, we, we've got this ideology of individualism, you know, what, what historians of ideas call individualism, which is a kind of new idea because we've come from collective societies where your sense of well-being did not depend on anything that you particularly did. You, you were first and foremost part of a tribe, part of a village. You were part of a family. It, it, your own achievements was only one part and perhaps even only the most minor part of that other, those other sources of identity and sense of self. We've done away with that. Everybody is meant to reinvent themselves. Um, and. That's wonderful and liberating and, and, and was part of, you know, the European and American story in the 18th century. But it's also deeply troubling for many of us. It crushes us because what a burden to bear. You know, what in a way, what unwitting cruelty to say to everyone, you can't rely on where you have come from. You can't define yourself by your group, by your family, by your ancestors by the nation. You can't believe in nationalism. It isn't enough for you to feel proud of, you know, your group. You have to be proud only of yourself and what you've achieved in the years since you finished your college education or, or, or whatever. That is a heavy and sometimes just overwhelming burden. It's, it's good to realize that we are under this pressure. It's not that that will magically make that pressure disappear, but just to, to be able to know, hmm, No wonder I'm a little twitchy on Sunday evenings as the sun goes down. No no wonder I get that Sunday feeling when I'm thinking, my God, I've got my dreams on the one hand and my reality on the other and the gap is too large and I feel desperate. You know, no wonder we feel that because that is what the whole system helps us and makes us feel. And I don't want to say that it's all wrong, um, but it is certainly very demanding. Look, my experience of envy and status anxiety, etc., it's a very simple idea. The more you know what you really want and where you're really going, the more what everybody else is doing starts to diminish. It's at the moments when your own path is that it's most ambiguous that the voices of others, the distracting chaos in which we live, the kind of, you know, the, the, the social media static, that starts to loom large and become very threatening. Um The thing about ourselves is, you know, as you know, we're not very good at understanding what it is that we really want. We're extremely prone to latch onto suggestions from the outside world. you know, like, you know, when, every, when everybody was saying, you know, tech was big, uh, a lot of people who never thought about it thought tech was really for them. Uh, when banking was big, people thought banking's, for, you know, for me. When people tell, were telling you that, you know, romantic love is perfect, you think, well, I must be finding and perhaps even feeling romantic love, etc. So we've got a lot of models out there that don't necessarily suit us, but are deeply powerful. And I think that to, to calm down, first of all, you know, you have to realize that your ultimate responsibility is to yourself, not the neighbors, not your parents, um, not the expectations that were put upon you. This is where the thought of death is tremendously releasing, that your only real responsibility is to, uh, you know, yourself as a kind of mortal, very temporary being, a constellation of, uh, you know, particles and proteins that are hanging together in a particular shape for a few years before disappearing forever. That's you. Um and there are you know more ways to be than you know your college um you know graduation speech led you to think. Um so yeah, these are some of the tensions of, of
0: the modern modern soul. And I I found a lot of this is something I sometimes have trouble uh verbalizing to people, but um I find that a lot of Buddhist thought has parallels with with stoic thought in terms of whether it's Marcus Aurelius saying at the end of uh, at the end of a very short period of time I will be bones and dust on the ground and that's his like uplifting note to himself in his journal before he goes off to battle uh or it's like a, a Musashi uh, Miyamoto who is one of the one of if not the most famous swordsmen in Japanese history who would say probably more or less the exact same thing uh, before setting off on his day and it sounds very depressing and it sounds like a downer, but it it's, it, for me has been such a helpful reminder and it's, it's, um, sad circumstances, but I've had two friends, uh, die of, um, uh, unexpected causes very suddenly in the last month. And it just, it, it seems to be all the more important that we have some type of memento mori, right? Some type of reminder of death that, uh, and in fact, I have a friend who is in finance. Don't hold that against him. He's a good guy. Uh, but uh, he has a an Excel spreadsheet that calculates and displays on his desk the number of expected hours he has left in his life so that he sees that every day. I don't have that, but in the for instance the four hour chef in the author photograph I put a small skull in the very bottom corner. It's kind of hard to see, but that's what a lot of artists used to do. Not to say that I'm an artist, but that was one of the ways I wanted to constantly remind myself that time is of uh, time can be very short. You don't you don't know how much how many hours you have left on the planet. Um where do you I, I'm sorry. I, I, I was just going to ask, and feel free to, to to take this in a different direction. But w- with the the uh, recognizing that the clearer you have defined what you want, the less fear of missing out, the the less status anxiety, the less suggestive you will be to the 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 madness of the mob. Uh, where would where, what do you where do you want to be in three years' time, for instance? Like what? Uh, what would you like your sort of day-to-day existence to be like, or what would you like to have achieved? It doesn't have to be a professional uh, in the next three years.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, if I can mention the, the, the professional, one of the things that's been really absorbing me in the last few years is, um, well, I was a writer for most of my uh, professional life. And then I always had a sense that writing books wasn't quite enough. And what I mean by enough is I didn't feel that sending people – you know two hundred pages glued together was necessarily always going to be the solution to many of the issues that I cared about i I, I felt had a sort of crisis of the soul where I realized that you know this idea of being a writer that i'd wanted so badly when I was younger um, was no longer fully satisfying me because I realized that so many problems um were not going to be amenable to treatment by books that you needed other things um, and that led me to begin an organization, um, which I call the School of Life, which was very much in line with things that uh, I've been caring about in my books for a long time. But there were a few differences. For a start, it wasn't just about me. Um, It was actually about gathering gathering together with a group of like-minded, but different people with different talents and different skills and starting something that, um, you know, could be a, a proper collective and an institution. The reason I started where I did was that I read a lot about religion because at a certain point in my kind of crisis about, you know, the meaning of being a writer, et cetera, I got very interested in religions because I thought religion, I'm, I'm an atheist, I don't believe, but I'm very interested in religions and very sympathetic to many of the things you find in religion. And what I realized that you find in religion is a machine, organization. Religions don't just believe in writing their deepest thoughts down in a book and that's it. They support uh, things by having communal activities, group activities, um, getting very involved in the arts, getting involved in this thing which we call ritual. I mean, we can talk more about that. You know, what is a ritual? But um, ritualized actions, repetition, the repetition of ideas, not just, you don't just read them once. You, you repeat them maybe with other people. Um, uh, you, you might use music to, to get a point across. Um, all of these things fascinated me. And I realized that as religion declined in, uh, you know, in Europe in the 19th century, in many parts of the United States, even now, etc. Um, as religion disappeared, it was in many places uh, uh, replaced by culture. You know, people who in previous ages would have been religious got very interested in music and literature and philosophy and all these sort of things. Um, but I realized that those things were missing one thing that religion really did well, which was the kind of the group bit, the institutional bit, the the embedding in daily life bit. Um, and I thought, couldn't we… Do some of that now, and I also looked backwards to ancient Greece, and I realized that philosophers, many of them, had started up schools. Epicurus had started a school called the Garden. The Stoics had, you know, the Stoa, Plato uh, uh, had uh, the the um, had his school, the Academy, etc. And um, it's not that I wanted to directly imitate that, but I thought how interesting that these were people who thought you it isn't enough just to be you in a book. Anyway many of these thoughts contributed to my beginning this thing um, that I call the school of life. And it's been the focus of a lot of my energy in the last four years. Um, to give you just a sense of it, uh, this thing has its HQ in London, but we now have 10 branches around the world, including in Australia, in the Far East, in Europe, etc. Um, not in the United States yet, but what we do is um, –
0: we don't. We don't care about that. No, no
1: I, I, you care, we just want big, bigger cars. You, you, care, you care so much, but you know, I can explain why we're not in the United States in a minute. But if you want, I'm just but, kidding. No, no, I'd love, love to be one day, but we're not yet. Anyway, we um, uh, we run classes, we, we publish books, uh, we put on events, uh, we run a YouTube channel, uh, we do all sorts of things, and um, and it's just you have some great great videos on the YouTube channel. I highly recommend it. Thank you. you. And and you know, really, what all we, what we're trying to do is to take a lot of the stuff that I carry. About, but but try and find other channels down which to to distribute it. I mean, your career more than anyone shows, you know, how that can be done and that is done. And so I I felt a kind of restlessness, which perhaps you felt as well at, at, at a certain point about, you know, what it means to be a writer and, um, and it's perhaps an intersection of writing and business for me and, and, uh, learning how to create a business out of something that might previously have just been seen as a kind of romantic inspiration of the kind of lone artist. Um, anyway, all of that's been very interesting. And, and, you know, you ask about the goals in the next few years. I, I really hope to continue to make a contribution there and to make the School of Life as good as it can be, for us to touch as many lives as we can in as diverse a way as we can, um to to invite more and more people into this kind of little home we've built
0: And uh that was started in two thousand eight? Yes, is that, that right? Or was it started Yes, in yes, two thousand eight, yes, yes. Yeah. So that's, that is around the time, 2008-2009, uh, after I think partially instigated by the cultural uh, – well, I shouldn't say cultural – existential and financial insecurity caused by the uh, mortgage-backed securities – crisis of that time. But I, I developed a quite a high degree of restlessness about being an author, which led to starting the angel investing and looking at startups as a way to um, using as a means of leverage. So using startups as an Archimedes lever of sorts to translate some of these concepts into the real world in a way that could scale at a very high level. Uh, but l- let me ask you, A a slightly more personal question. So what, for instance, bad habits are you working to overcome at the moment or hope to work on? Let's, let's, let's look at the the Mm -hmm. present day. I have a million of my own that I usually overshare in Facebook Q and A's and things like that, especially if wine is involved. But, uh, what, what bad habits are you currently working on? If, if, um,
1: look, it's a very classic one that, that, You know, so many people, so many of us are guilty of, which is not properly communicating. And what I mean by properly is not properly teaching others about myself, what I'm feeling, what I would like, what bothers me. And instead of properly communicating, merely acting out and symbolizing things and expecting to be understood. And this is a constant effort really to, um, to not imagine that those around me should mind-read, they can't know what I feel <laughs> unless I tell them. And also, they won't hear me unless I speak in a certain way. Um, if I'm agitated… And get annoyed quickly, that immediately shuts off communication. If I blame them, that shuts off communication. They will not hear. If I humiliate anyone, that message will get lost. So if you're trying to get something across, you know, resist all those bad habits that we all have around communication. I think it's trying to learn how to be a better teacher and a better student. You know, teaching has these sort of weird connotations. You think of like some guy teaching history in a high school or something like that, but in order to have a good life, all of us need to learn how to be good teachers and good students of one another because every day creates moments when we need to teach something. We we need to give somebody a lesson. It may be in you know what time we're going to be home tonight or how we're feeling about um you know some event on the horizon or whatever it is but we're going to need to get something across and that requires kind of rules and disciplines and just simply blurting it out simply kind of exploding in some way or emoting in some way is normally the worst way and at the same time we have to learn to become students which is you know to listen properly to interpret maybe somebody's making a bit of a mess of trying to tell you something but Try and listen to what they might be telling you beneath the surface. I've got relatively small kids. They very often don't tell you what they feel. They can't tell you directly what they feel. You have to do some guesswork and a lot of what you have to deduce. Yeah, you have to deduce, but I think, I think you have to deduce from everybody's uh, sake. And, you know, very few of us learn on the spot. You know, if, if, if somebody told me or told you a big central truth about you. You know, the thing about you, Tim, is da-da-da. Or the thing about you, Allah, is da-da-da. If that was said, even just vaguely, brutally, or or, or just even with a little whatever, we would shut down. We get defensive. We go, no, that's not true. How do you know? What are you trying to do, etc. We shut down quickly. We don't absorb that information. And um, we should. We should try and get less defensive. And at the same time, when we're in the kind of giving feedback role, we should really think carefully. So I, I think this whole business of, of listening and feedback is a, is a key issue that I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to work on.
0: I'm trying to do the same thing. And that was, that was my newly adopted puppy also trying
1: to, <laughs> to make his feelings known to,
0: to trying to, trying to communicate. I, I've taught her to kick the bells on the door, but <laughs> aside from that, I'm so far failing it at, at speaking dog, but the, uh, I'm trying to do the same thing, and I think that, uh, you mentioned the young children. I think if you, if you could, you can recognize that if you, uh, if you were to keep someone from having lunch, keep anyone from having lunch for three or four hours, and uh, give them uh, an argument with a spouse or loved one or coworker 60 minutes earlier, that their emotional state will pro- probably be closer to your children than anything else. <laughs> and and if you assume that when you read their email, as opposed to uh, reading malicious intent, I was always, um, I shouldn't say always, I was told, Quite some time ago, something that I've, I've enjoyed trying to remind myself of so I don't respond in kind, so I don't volley back something nasty with something nasty that, uh, don't attribute to malice what you can attribute to incompetence. That's very <laughs> nice. And, and a close, a close cousin of that, which I've had to add to it is don't attribute to malice what you can attribute to incompetence or busyness. Yes.
1: Like, That's right. I mean, I uh, often think sa- someone once said to, to this to me and I, it's really stuck in my mind that, When people seem like they are mean, they're almost never mean. They're anxious. That's what, that's what inspires the behavior that we read as meanness, but it, it very frequently is not meanness. And these are very basic bits of psychology. But, you know, I should say, you know, again, the older I get, the more I think we are relatively simple creatures, just as, you know, to nourish us. Physically, we need quite basic things, some bread, you know, an olive or two, some water, and off we go. So when it comes to our kind of inner psyches, um, many of the things that we need have an almost breathtaking simplicity. It is things like the person is mean, not worried. They're almost like mantras. They are simple things. And I think we are so highly educated. We we, we over-educate ourselves out of Connection with these simple truths, um, and they are so key. And this is something you, know, you mentioned Buddhism. This is something the Zen Buddhists are very keen on. You know, Zen Buddhist philosophy and poetry is often unbelievably simple. And, and you, you know, rather than seeing that as an argument against it, um, you know, the great masters will ponder a sentence, turn it over, write it down in ever more you know, beautiful, refined, but simple ways on a piece of paper, etc. And, and I think that we've got, unfortunately, because of science and the glamour of science, this addiction to the idea that the most valuable things must be very complicated and constantly new, rather than perhaps very simple and repetitions of some basic, quite old truths. And it, it's just, I think we're mixing up uh, a, a kind of source of wisdom in one area, which is, you know, flying rockets with, uh, a source of wisdom in another, which is like how to get through your day. And we're, we're misinterpreting what we need for both realms. We're thinking we need the kind of scientific version in, in personal life where actually it's really super unhelpful.
0: Yeah. And I think also we tend to, as, uh, higher primates with big prefrontal cortexes, uh, Courtesies? I have no yeah. idea. In any case, we want to, uh, if we're having a bad day, we look at these big existential questions as opposed to, did I have five olives or should I have five olives? Maybe my blood sugar is just low. That's
1: right. <laughs> That's saying. right. I mean, I, I, you know, I love that. Wasn't it Clinton who said that, uh, you know, before when dealing with anyone who's upset, he always asks, has this person slept? Have they eaten? You know, is somebody else bugging them? He goes through this kind of simple, checklist but we are you know we know so much when we're handling babies and the baby is kicking and crying we re- almost never one, never does one say you know that baby's out to get me or you know she's got evil intentions we go you know she's probably tired or he's you know he hasn't had enough sleep or maybe it's too tight around his collar or whatever we we, we look for pretty benevolent often pretty basic explanations when we, once we reach adulthood we almost never i mean When have we been in a situation with an angry person who's, you know, whatever? uh, We always look at, at the intellectual level. We very rarely go wow, this is probably someone who's really pretty tired or you know, it's, uh, you know, it's one o'clock and they've not had anything to eat. So that's where the explanation, is. It, it offends our self-knowledge. It, it offends our, dig- our sense of dignity, but it really shouldn't. And as you say, we are a, you know, an amazing computer sitting on some very, very basic bits of, of, of software and not to accept how basic we are is its own version of kind of
0: pretension and, and, and we should resist it. And self-sabotage, yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, I would love to shift gears a little bit and uh, lob some rapid-fire questions your way. The answers don't need to be rapid, but uh, when you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind and why... Mm
1: i, I, I didn 't want it to, <laughs> to but, um, but unfortunately, the Steve Jobs came to mind and i 'm really annoyed about that because i don 't actually see see him as, as the quintessence of of success. Um, look, I think a successful person is somebody who has Taken hold and fathomed their talents, made the most out of those talents, and reconciled themselves to their weaknesses. They're not ranting and raging about their weaknesses. They have a sense of what those weaknesses are. They're not blaming the world for them. They know them, they own them. At the same time, uh, they, they've had a sense of their strengths and they've been able to make something of those strengths. And maybe that thing's relatively modest, but they've still managed to externalize those strengths. That's asking a lot. That is a successful life. Very few of us are lucky enough to get there. Um, but I think that's what it might be.
0: Who, who would be a... Someone, not Steve Jobs, uh, who certainly was prone to ranting and raving, and I'm not sure how aware he was of many of his weaknesses. But uh, who who would be an exemplar of that for you? It's funny. I've, I've,
1: I was recently in, in Switzerland where I, I come from. And um, when I was little, I was partly brought up by my parents, but also, also partly brought up by a very kindly lady who lived with us in the in the family. She was helping the family, etc. And she was almost like a second mother to me. And she's now 83 years old and lives in an isolated Swiss village. She's in amazing health uh, for her age. And she is a true saint. In, she's not religious, but you know, if you wanted to offer somebody up to science as somebody who is well balanced, you won't read about her in the newspaper. You won't, you know, see her, etc. But you actually sit in her kitchen and you talk about politics with her. You talk about child raising. You talk about the meaning of life. This is a person with an inherent ballast, who's no nonsense, who knows how to be kind, who knows how to laugh, who knows, etc. And you know, the world is full. Of such people, people who represent what you might call an ordinary genius, an ordinary genius of the business of living. Oh, I like that, and and we, we we walk past these people because they don't star in any of our you know uh, calendars. I I'd go so far as to say that perhaps a few more of them are women than men, um, and uh, they are utterly unheralded. Uh, but but they are out there, and they are the true philosophers.
0: Yeah, I guess that could be contrasted with the extraordinary hubris that we seem to worship uh oftentimes, sadly. That's right.
1: But that's right. I mean, that, that's why I was kicking myself when, you know, the very word success has become contaminated by our ideas of someone extraordinary, very rich, etc. And um, and that's really unhelpful, that ultimately to be properly successful is, you know, to be at peace as well. You know, I, I've seen too many people who are so-called successful who are not at peace. And... um Right. You know, that's a problem.
0: Well, and, and not to be too cliched about it, but I think that uh, it's easy to define success as uh, is getting what you want. Uh, but for those people you mentioned with that internal ballast, that ordinary genius, they also want what they have, right? They appreciate what they have, which I think is uh, not nearly as taught or studied as the achieving of what we want, unfortunately. Absolutely.
1: And and you know, you say taught, I mean, we need reminders of this. We that's, you know, we're otherwise people go, oh yeah, you know, when you tell someone that, they go, oh yeah, that's obvious. I knew that. And you go, yeah, but is it alive? There's such a difference between an idea being in theory in your brain and alive in your brain. And those kind of ideas about appreciating every day et cetera, are generally not alive in our brains, and that's a problem of art, really. They are not artistically alive, and um, that's something to bear in mind.
0: What is the book that you've given most as a gift aside from your own? book or books? Hmm.
1: Well, there was a stage um, before I I got married and when I was on the dating scene um, when I gave a lot of copies. This was the 90s. I gave a lot of copies of Milan Kundera to people. It it suggested The Unbearable Lightness of Being was a a book that I I gave out a lot. Um, I don't know if I still would, but I do admire uh, this Czech writer very much. And um, and and it, and it has all kinds of wisdom and um and it's beautifully written and, and impactful as well i've given quite a lot of copies of montaigne's essays to people down the years um and um i've not given proust cuz it's a little heavy um but yes that that kind of thing
0: Thank you. And for the, those people, we, his name has come up a bit, uh, or, or several times in this conversation, Montaigne. There's a, uh, there's a post by Ryan Holiday, an introduction to Montaigne on the blog. For those of you who want to check it out at fourhourworkweek.com. And I'm sure that um, that will be linked to in the show notes as well as everything that we've talked about so far. Uh, what is something you believe that other people think is insane? Hmm. Or many other people. It doesn't have to be everyone, but what is something you think that mm, most other people think. Is
1: yeah. Um, I believe in the nanny state. We live in a very, you have that, you have that expression in the States, right? The nanny state. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I believe in the nanny state. Um, it, I'm not coming at it from the left or the right. It's almost you know, irrespective of that. But I believe essentially in a public sphere, which should offer guidance. I think the idea of the neutral public sphere, where for example, um, it's just completely left to the market, to decide, you know, and if you've got the money, you buy an advertisement. You know, if, if you if you want to pay for a billboard, pay for a billboard, etc. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm 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 interested in the way that we went from religious societies, which guided people towards important truths, to a, to societies that have just left everyone completely alone. So, in my utopia, um, there would be a lot more guidance. Um, I, I, I am a believer in, because I've needed so much guidance. Um, I would, I would be, re, I would pay, you know, real attention to what's on the airwaves, for example. Um, in, in the UK at the moment where I'm based, um, the government is thinking hard about what it should do with its, gigantic television station, the BBC, that it gives millions, in fact, billions of pounds to every year. And it's wondering what it should do with it. And the argument seems to be, seems to be quite a sterile one. But my view should be on the national broadcaster should be programs that systematically address all the largest failings and dilemmas of the nation, including you know for the failures of around parenting around uh, family breakdowns around violence around anxiety uh, uh, around uh, loneliness etc we know government statisticians know what the problems are in you know large populations but we they refuse the tools that they have like say the bbc and the idea is, well, no one should tell anyone how to live. There's such a fear of fascism, of communism. Um, and I can't help thinking that we have made a bogeyman here, that that isn't really the threat. Um, the real threat is that we are drowning in chaotic noise and unable to find a kind of balance. Um, and I think that um, you know, I'd be up for a little bit more vigilance about that and a little bit more nannying of the best kind. So that's the kind of thing that I'm very careful not to tell you. I don't know why I've told you and your millions of listeners now. But 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 I you know it's I I, I'm aware, you know, because I use YouTube a lot and I'm aware that if you if you put anything out there that says even anything like that an unbelievable torrent of messages comes through along the lines of you're a communist or you're a fascist or, um, you're trying to infantilize me or blah, blah, blah. And my view is always, hang on a minute. You know, we're all adults. And when you know you're an adult, you can also admit that actually seeking help, therapeutic help in the broadest sense is part of adult life that saying, you know, no one teaches me anything. I'm just my own person. Totally. Uh, is a kind of slightly brittle version of uh, maturity, and I'm interested in a more dependent relationship on others, where we can seek help, where we're not offended if someone offers help to us because we can turn it away, but we're not offended by the offer of help. And so, these are some of the things that I think about late at night, and it would offend and frighten everybody.
0: <laughs> so, a couple of a couple of thoughts. The first is. Uh on the art of asking i think amanda palmer the musician has a lot of interesting things to say that uh people could benefit from from checking out the second is um on the uh, being called a fascist i think that youtube I, I love it god bless it but if you scroll to page 4 or 5 of comments i think on any video even <laughs> if it's kitten playing the piano you're going to have hitler and fascism course, in there somewhere uh the the uh, then the third piece i would say is in terms of the the state or the government offering guidance or maybe even differing positions on some of these bigger moral questions and life questions, I think that there might be a forcing function. And that forcing function uh, could be artificial intelligence and things like autonomous cars. I think technology, oddly enough, the most cutting-edge technology is going to drive... A reversion in some ways, or return to some of the oldest philosophical quandaries and thought experiments uh, that that we have, that we that that we visit in say a freshman seminar and think of as irrelevant, like uh, you know the trolley scenario or the fat man blocking the cave with four people inside who are going to starve. But when you translate that to modern day, I mean, even right now, uh, there are tech companies hiring. Uh, what they might consider utilitarian philosophers, like the, the um, along the lines of, say, a Peter Singer, uh, to advise them on some of these questions. For instance, if you have to program a car that is going to make decisions in, um, disaster scenarios, like, uh, there's, there is something in the middle of the road. I have to swerve. Do I choose to hit the six old ladies on the right hand side or the two school children on the left side. How do you make that calculus? Right? And so I think that in, in some ways, technology might force the state, uh, or, or governments of various types, uh, to take a more active role in this type of conversation. I, 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 yeah, because,
1: I think you're, I think that's yeah. absolutely right and fascinating. And I, I too have been very interested in, in artificial intelligence of late. And I think that, um, what we're talking about is, The broad recognition that we are not very good at making decisions, that our brains are extremely faulty in all sorts of ways. At the same time, we have this idea that no one should tell us how to live. And what can slightly break the logjam is uh, big data, scientific information, so that in the Google of, you know, in 50 years time, you will say, you know, who shall I marry? And the answers will really be quite accurate and personally attuned to you and akin to having gone to psychotherapy for 10 years in their level of awareness of you know the issues facing you um so i think you're absolutely right that artificial intelligence will um break through many people's resistance to insights which currently because they're not based on science and hard data seem are just too vulnerable to being shot down by the by the kind of line of like you know who are you to say? No. It doesn't have any fact behind it. Uh, they may be right, but right. because because we, we live in a society that's quite obsessed by science and 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 facts, and won't accept things unless they're backed up by facts and science, we may just need to wait a little until some of these more humanistic truths and insights have got the backing that is required to to allow them to have sort of mass uptake.
0: Oh, agreed. And I think that uh, another. Uh, another factor will will sort of drive together and confluence certainly with other things uh to ai or incorporating ai and that is virtual reality i just had uh, i i was not a true believer <clears throat> until uh less than a week ago i had a virtual reality demo that i can't go into too many details about because it's not hugely public that completely blew my mind. I mean, the, the experience was so lifelike and so compelling that, uh, it, it, it made me wonder, uh, more than ever, if we're in a simulacrum of our own of of some type, but uh, it will raise questions such as, I mean, when you are in a three-dimensional, immersive, photorealistic environment, and most certainly there will be, uh, tactile components and so on, olfactory components. Those, those will come at some point. When will games be permitted? For instance, that rather than being relegated to a two D surface on the television, allow you to kill someone, blood, bludgeon someone to death, uh, or I mean, much worse. Right? The, the, are those going to be in any way regulated, or are those going to be allowed? You know, and what what effect does that have? versus a more uh, video game-esque in the traditional sense experience, right? So it's um, scary, it's very terrifying, but at the same time I think holds a lot of promise. Um, Let me um, completely abruptly transition to (laughs) (laughs) another short question, which is, uh, what is your favorite dot? documentary or movie or what are what are what are some of your favorite documentaries
1: well i very much enjoyed a documentary which i don't know if you'll know called seven up which was done in the uk um and it what it did is is it followed a group of children um every seven years starting from their seventh birthday and these children were um picked deliberately from wide a variety of social backgrounds, different kind of families, et cetera. And every seven years, these kids were revisited and um, we traced their lives. And of course, you know, this is one of the things that art can do for us. It it kind of traces lives over time spans that we normally, you know, can't have access to. So um, now these people are, you know, in their 50s and they're still making the documentary um and uh, and it gets updated every 7 years every seven years there's a new thing and it's a kind of it's a f- weird feature of british life like everyone knows seven up sort of thing uh and it just comes along every every 7 years and we know these people and their lives show such a variation ups and downs and sometimes you know sometimes things are going really well other times are going terribly etc and it, again it's It's so much the art I like. It's, it's very much attuned to the everyday. It's concerned with, broadly speaking, with wisdom and how we can live and, um, very undramatic, but quietly so powerful. It's, for my money, it's probably the best documentary that exists. I very much recommend it. Um, so that's one that comes to mind. That's a,
0: it's a strong endorsement. I'll have to, I will, I'm on a tear with docs, so I'll have to check that out. The, uh, what is, a purchase of $100 or less that has positively impacted your life in the last six months? Um,
1: I've really discovered the pomegranate. And the po- po- pomegranates <laughs> were just a weird thing. I, kn- I never even knew they existed, really. I knew the word. I just didn't know what it was. Anyway, uh, someone told me about pomegranates and that they could be really interesting thing to – to eat and make part of one's diet and um it's it's a thing i now regularly have uh they're not cheap each one you know is, is a few pounds and um but they're they're deliciously weird and um you know you would think wow you know it's it's great this kind of thing exists on this on this little blue dot um this, <laughs> this thing grows so that's 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 brought me constant constant pleasure upon the life of pomegranates
0: How do you, how do you consume your pomegranates? What is your preferred sort of method and, and, uh, time of uh, day for uh, pomegranates? To to
1: split them in half. And then while you've got your hand with your finger slightly open over the, the pomegranate face down into the palm of your hand, you then strike the pomegranate hard with a wooden spoon, which gets the seeds to shake out they go into a little bowl oh
0: Um,
1: that's a good trick yeah you you hit it a few times and out out they fall and um and and it's just it makes a delicious kind of snack and and you feel good and you feel virtuous but it's it's nice as well um so i really recommend that i i think all in my ideal nanny state um you know there would be pomegranates in every
0: Pomegranate, in every, uh, pomegranate ra- rations that's, that's for every right. citizen. That's right. They
1: would, they would be forcibly <laughs> on sale in every gas station across the United States. And I think I think genuinely the health, but more importantly the happiness of Americans would rise exponentially.
0: <laughs> I love it. Uh, what I used to love eating grapefruits in the morning. My grandmother used to used to use brown sugar on sort of pre cut grapefruits that we could scoop out with special grapefruit spoons so that that, that this is this is making me long to pomegranates. Yeah. <laughs> uh what um what rituals you mentioned rituals earlier what rituals are important uh for you on a daily basis uh my the listeners often like evening i'm sorry morning routines but it doesn't have to be morning what what rituals or routines uh do you find very valuable important in your life well
1: you know there was a lot of talk a few years ago and still now of meditation and mindfulness and getting into a, a certain state and um and i i thought a lot about this and i thought why is it that it's not quite working for me as it's defined but that there's something here that i really like and i realized that what i love doing at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day is to kind of download my brain is to just download those thoughts that are buzzing around, slightly shapeless, slightly directionless, and they need a little help. And if I don't get to grips with them, they will disturb my sleep or they'll wake me up early. So what I like to do is just sit with a pad and paper and write down in very small, slightly scrawly, legible handwriting, lots of things. It could just be a word, uh, an image, something, and they will be the starting points of things you know books have begun out of one word that i sort of caught in my and it's a, it's a kind of housekeeping it's a kind of intellectual housekeeping i like to call it a kind of philosophical meditation where you just yeah you, you you just turn over what's going on in your mind and i think insomnia i went through a stage of having insomnia and i think that insomnia is a kind of revenge of all the stuff that you haven't thought about enough that's Demands to be thought about and will wake you up in order that it gets its fair share of, of thought. And if you can do that before bed um, uh, with a pad and paper, it can be, you know, the best, uh, uh, you know, sleeping pill you've, you've ever had.
0: Do you have a particular type of journal or pad that you'd like to use? Um,
1: I'm unfussy. I'm pretty unfussy about what I write on all kinds of, of pads. Um, I have a, a wonderful. Japanese pen called a Pilot, you know, those Pilot pens, and it's called a G-Tech C4, and I write religiously only with those. I'm also very – I'm the last uh, person on the planet to uh, work with a BlackBerry, and I write all sorts of thoughts down on a BlackBerry, um, uh, and and that's very helpful too. So those are my tools. That's
0: uh, So you share the BlackBerry, the sort of uh, vestigial BlackBerry. In common with a friend of mine named Neil Strauss, oh, right. who's written seven or eight I feel New York Times bestsellers. I, feel
1: <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's an odd feeling. You feel very left out, and um, there should be a support group started, uh, because it's a, it's a very isolated position to be in. And one questions one's sanity sometimes. One thinks one will go over to the light side soon, but one just can't do it. And, and
0: yeah, there we are. <laughs> uh, if you could have just a few more questions. If you could have one billboard anywhere with anything on it what would it say
1: um well i think it would it would probably pick up on the need to appreciate the need to be kind um i mean it could be it could be something stark i mean it sums up what we were saying it could it could say you have only you know an average life is however how many
0: how many hundred thousand of hours you you know this figure Oh, I well, don't. I, you know, I maybe if I were better caffeinated and okay. Well, what
1: life is? Okay, <laughs> it would say life is only four hundred thousand hours long. Be kind, or something like that, just to grab mm-hmm. the motorist as they're speeding down the highway at insane speed.
0: Um, something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I like it. And what advice would you give your thirty-year-old self? Um calm down and it, and and where would you be at at 30 what uh, what's the sort of surrounding context
1: um I mean, what was it or what should it be
0: no 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 where was, were you well, I, where 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 were you in I life mean
1: then? 30 was a it was a weird year um my father died when I was 30 very surprisingly so I was suddenly in a in a kind of different different place and that was very shocking at the same time it was a very successful year my my book the constellations philosophy came out um I I met my wife uh, my my she wasn't then my wife but I met uh, the person who became my wife that year so it was a kind of um a, a year of many things I mean I think I think I would have also said, you know, appreciate what's good about this moment. Um, don't always think that, you you know, you're on a permanent journey, you know, stop and enjoy the view. Um, this is life too. I think it, it took me a long time to kind of dare to appreciate the moment because I always had this assumption that if you appreciate the moment, you're weakening your resolve to improve your circumstances. Um, that's yeah. not true, but I think when you're young, it's sort of associated with that. And even things like flowers, you see, I had people around me who would say things like, "Oh, well, isn't that flower nice? And a little part of me was thinking, you absolute loser. You've taken time to appreciate a flower. Do you not have bigger plans? I mean, is this is this the limit of your ambition? Um, and I think that, you know, <laughs> when life's knocked you around a bit, when you've seen a few things and time has happened and you've got some years under your belt, you think, Mm, you start to think more highly of of modest things like like flowers and a you know, pretty sky and or just a morning when nothing's gone wrong and everyone's been pretty nice to everyone else and things are pretty nice and it's you know it's coming up to eleven o'clock or twelve o'clock and things things are going well and you think that's nice, no one's died no one everyone's okay um you, you it makes you a little bit more modest and I didn't have that at all at 30. And I think it was a kind of, when people talk about the young people being ungrateful, you often go like, how do you mean that ungrateful? It's not, it's not ingratitude, it's anxiety again. But, but I Mm. wish that I could have reassured my, my anxious self and, and, and just said, you know, that there is time to look out of the window and, and spot those flowers.
0: That's great advice. It's advice I need to Take to heart also. I think I've, I've done better. Uh, it's funny you mentioned flowers because specifically when I go on walks, I make a point. It says thanks to my girlfriend, uh, to stop and smell but, flowers, yeah. whether it's with the dog or otherwise, just as a brief pause. But, um, I think that, you know, ambition can be a wonderful tool and, but it's a terrible master. And it's, it's also something that for the most part you cash in in the future.
1: And the and future may not come as we know.
0: The, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and it did reminds me of this, you know, story that uh, Neil Gaiman, the writer, tells I think it might have been in his commencement speech, Making Good Art, which everyone should watch. You can just Google it. But uh what he 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 was reflecting on uh signing books for Sandman, which was his his first real huge hit, and signing comic books in this case. And uh Stephen King, I believe it was, said, you know, enjoy this moment. And he didn't. He was, he was, he was wrapped up in, I, mean, I can only imagine looking two years in the future, three years in the future, striking while the iron is hot, whatever it might have been. And I think that's something that, uh, that I need a constant reminder of. Uh, and the journaling, as you mentioned, I think also helps with that. You
1: know, there's a funny thing. My, my wife and I, we, well, she spotted that I, I kept talking about cancer and, uh, you know, kept saying things like, well, I don't have cancer yet. And, you know, what happens if one day I, I get cancer? And so when well, we now have this joke, uh, between us, because this, I kept putting it like this. And so now she goes, remember, we're in the years before your bowel cancer. And she's, she's <laughs> partly teasing me. She's kind of, but, but really what we're saying, you know, she goes, remember, it's before the bowel cancer. Um, and it's really a way of saying kind of, my God, you know, things can get very miserable. Um, very quickly, it only takes a very few cells to subdivide in the wrong way. And a lot of what seems important now will just no longer be. And it, yeah, we just have to keep that in mind all the time. These today, which seems so incomplete from so many ways and, you know, maybe frustrating in this and that way today may be the day that you know, in a week you will look back on as paradise. Um, because we are so, it could, it could always get so much worse. And I think partly to having children as well, you know, we're very much at the mercy of fortune. You know, the Stoics talked a lot about fortune. Fortune can do anything with us. You know, we are very fragile creatures. You only need to tap us or hit us in slightly the wrong place and we are done for. And the kind of levels of tragedy that can be, you know, all of us you only, you have to push us a little bit and we crack very easily whether that's you know the pressure of disgrace or physical illness or financial pressure etc it doesn't take very much and um yeah so we we do have to appreciate every day that goes by without a major disaster
0: i think that's a great a great place to wrap up uh i love your work where can people find out about uh, what you're up to online, find you on social, et cetera? How can they say hello? What would you like them to check out of yours first, perhaps, right. if they're unfamiliar sure. with your the
1: Well, they can come and see my website, which is my name, com. They can come and see me at on Twitter, just at alaindebotton. Um, I run a YouTube channel via the school of life. So come and check out the school of life at schooloflife.com, and and come and look at the, some of the films that I make there. I make, I make three films a week. So there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, I write a, a blog at something called the Um, so you'll see a lot of my pieces on all sorts of things. So take a look around. There's quite a lot in the, in the digital space and there's quite a lot that's free. And if you want to buy a book, well, Amazon has them all and all the, big, big stores too. So, um, yeah, that's, that's me in out there in the world.
0: If you could recommend, uh, one video and one piece of writing of yours to start with, what would you suggest?
1: Um, well, if we're talking about, uh, um, we were talking a lot about, um, Proust, um, actually, no, Now, let me recommend something else. There's a film on my YouTube channel called Higher Consciousness. It's a really discussion of this strange term we sometimes got about higher consciousness. What is it? What does it mean to achieve higher consciousness? So punch into, uh, to, um, to the School of Life YouTube channel, punch in higher consciousness, and you'll get this film about, I don't know, how to look at the world in, you know, with higher consciousness. And then if you want to read something, go and check out How Proust Can Change Your Life. Um, I think it's still, it's a book that's still holds up after all these years and um it's got a lot of things that I deeply believe in so so check that out.
0: Wonderful. Well yeah I, I really admire your work. I enjoy your work and I would love for you to continue doing your work before the bowel cancer, of course. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh and if
1: you're you're an incredibly generous host person and a, an incredibly gifted communicator, speaker, writer, inspirer. So it's been a tremendous honor for me. Um thank you so much. I'm I I know you've you've done me a serious service in doing this and I fully recognize it. Bowel cancer or no bowel cancer, it's fantastic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this has been this has been really fun. Uh and Everybody out there, everything we talked about, you will be able to find in the show notes. Uh, that is at fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out. Click on podcast, and you can find this and all previous episodes, and you'll be able to find the books, the articles, the thinkers, everything that we mentioned in this conversation. And until next time, of course, thank you for listening. And along. I hope to see you in person sometime soon. So. And thank again. you so much. Bye-bye. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one...